Jesus, we, we stand and, and worship you as the Lord over all creation, as the, the one who is worthy of our praises and our lives and our everything. And Jesus, we're so thankful. Thank you for, for coming and meeting with us. Thank you for your presence here this morning. And Lord, we know that we're just scratching the surface here. We know there's so much more to you, the Lord of all. So we ask you, Jesus, to come and show us more of yourself. Show us more of who you are. That we would leave with greater boldness, greater passion, greater love and affection for you. Jesus, you are wonderful and we love you. So come and speak. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Okay, so over the uh, last few weeks at Teesside Vineyard, we've been uh, looking at five slogans which came out of a period of, of history called the, the Reformation. So about 500 years ago, uh, on October the 31st, 1517, there was a, a young monk called Martin Luther who, who walked up to the, the church door in Wittenberg and, and pinned on this big wooden door 95 statements which conveyed his, his convictions from the scripture that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And this then kick-started, like, well, what we call the Reformation, but it was like, it was a revolution, a radical revolution throughout the, throughout the church in the West. And uh, as, as people were awakened once again to the truth of the gospel, for, for centuries there'd been false teaching and uh, corruption in the church, and suddenly, thanks to the scriptures being circulated and the, and the true gospel being preached once again, people were waking up and thinking, oh man, I don't, I don't have to tick off these boxes to get myself into heaven. I need to put my faith in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And you can imagine for generations, people have been under this weight of sin and not knowing how they're going to make themselves right with a holy God. They were under this, this weight, not knowing, not, not knowing what to do. They were giving money to the, to the Pope, thinking that might save them, but still the guilt remained. Then suddenly, the gospel was being preached and the power of the Holy Spirit. People were getting saved. Eyes were opened. People were meeting with Jesus, falling in love with him. And communities were transformed as this message of, of hope and truth and life and love and mercy and forgiveness was, was being preached. And you hear crazy stories. Like most of these guys, the key guys who were involved in the, in the kickstart of this movement, they ended up giving their life for what they believed in. And, and other stories as well, like there's a community, community called the Moravians. They held a prayer meeting nonstop for a hundred years. And this, there was just this little village and... You know, they took it in turns to go into the prayer room and keep the fire of prayer going. And from that little village, that kick-started a missionary movement. Some of those guys were selling themselves into slavery to get onto the plantations to tell the slaves about Jesus. Crazy stuff. But that's, that's what the gospel does. And that's why we wanted to take five weeks to, to remember the foundations, again, of our faith. These five slogans were what the reformers and what we as a church stand on. They're the foundations of, of all that we are as believers, all that we are as a, a church, and the, the, the five slogans, 
First off, we started off with scripture, scripture alone. So we believe that this book is true. And it is our ultimate and final source and authority for our theology, what we believe about God, our, our, our roots as a, as, a, as a group of believers, how we should live in the present, and what's going to happen in the future. We stand on, on this book, Scripture alone. Next came faith alone. Remember at the time that the church was preaching that you were saved, made right with God by faith plus works, or faith plus giving money to the, to the Pope, or faith plus being a good person, or faith plus confessing to a priest. We believe, convinced by scriptures, along with Martin Luther, that it is by faith alone in Jesus Christ that you are saved. Faith alone, full stop. Next one was grace alone. What we deserve is punishment for our rebellion against God. It is only by his grace that we do not get what we deserve, but rather we receive love and mercy and forgiveness. And then the, the final one next week is going to be for the glory of God alone. Everything, all of creation, everything we want to be about as a church is to make that God look amazing to the world. We want people to meet him, to see him, to fall in love with him, to give their lives to him. We want to see God glorified. And the, the, the slogan today, the, the fourth one out of the five, is Jesus Christ alone. Everything that we want to be doing, we want to be doing to show people Jesus. And all because of Jesus. And this one... All five of the slogans are like part of our foundation, but this one, Jesus Christ alone, this is central to all the other four. Scripture is all about Jesus. We put our faith in Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross is central to God's grace being poured out on us. And God's glory is revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus alone. I was, I was working um, down at a, a church in Southampton a, f- a few years ago. It was, it was an amazing church. It had grown from about uh, like 80, 90 to well over 500, 600 in five years. It was incredible. God was doing amazing stuff there. The leaders were phenomenal preachers. They were making impacts in the, in, into the community, fostering kids, feeding people, getting people into work. Like, the town knew that this church was there. It was, it was amazing, and so I learned so much, so much from those leaders um, about church leadership, about discipleship, about you know, preaching and teaching, about prayer, all those amazing things. But when I look back, the thing that sticks in my mind the most is this little elderly lady. She was about three foot tall. She felt like it. She was this little old lady called Eileen. And I noticed Eileen, she helped out in the coffee shop um, on Tuesday and Thursday morning. She'd come down on a bike. She was like late 80s, but she was still on a bike, fit as a fiddle. Um, she, and she was always just full of life and love and joy. I was like, what, what's Eileen's story? You know, she was one of, one of those people that just brought a presence into the, into the room and made you notice. And she just went about serving and loving people. I thought, what's, what's Eileen's story? So I arranged to, to go around for a cup of tea. And it was in this little, you know, one-bedroom bungalow uh, just outside Southampton. And we sat and, and had, had tea. And I just asked her, I said, Eileen, tell me your story. So it turns out that little old Eileen had been a missionary in the Amazon jungle in South America. She translated the New Testament into three different tribal languages. Dear me. And she just sat there with a cup of tea. All right. 
So, and, and just amazing, amazing stories of, of faith, of God's provision, of healings, of miracles. There was one time she was telling me how she was going down a, a dirt track on, on uh, like, in, well, through, through the jungle on a bike, and there was a tree that had been knocked over into the middle of the road. And she, she had, so she had to get off a bike, she slipped the bike under the tree, she climbed under it herself, and off she went. A few years later, she was, she was speaking in a village, and this young lad came up to her in, in tears because she'd just been preaching the gospel. He was ready to give his life to Jesus. But before he did that, she said, I remember you from five years ago. Me and my friend were, were, in, a, were in the jungle and we were pointing a gun at you. See, it was them who had knocked the tree into the middle of the road. So the plan was they'd knock the tree into the middle of the road. The people who were coming, would have to get out and move the tree. They would ambush them and take whatever possessions that they had. So he was pointing a gun at little Hiley. And then his friend said to him, no, she, she's a God woman. She does good stuff. And then she got away. And then five years later, she's preaching the gospel. This lad got saved. And it, amazing stories like that. I'm just saying, absolute awe. Like, Eileen, you're amazing. You've just sat there with a cup of tea, and you've got all this behind you, and I just want to sit and learn from you. And I said to her, I was like, Eileen, when, when, you, look, when you look back over your, your life, you know, she's late 80s, amazing stories of seeing God move in power. Like, when you look back over your life, what's, what's the highlight? What's, what's, what was the most precious moment that, that springs to mind? And... Uh, and she, dear me, I was crying when I was writing this thing. She, she looked over to her like armchair in the corner, and next to this armchair was a little coffee table with a, a scruffy old Bible, uh, a little coffee mat with a, you know, the, the, the stain, the circle stain in the middle of it. And she said, the most amazing times in my life, the most precious times, the most joyful times have been when I've been sat in that chair with that Bible, with Jesus. And, yeah, like, man, I haven't done this in a while. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I just, I left that church, you know, with, with loads of ideas and, and teaching and learning about church leadership and stuff like that, but I left thinking, I want to love Jesus like Eileen did. I want to, I want to meet with Jesus the way Eileen did for for, for years to come. So that's, that's what we're looking at today. Jesus alone. This, the, the treasure of Eileen's long life was Jesus alone. And I, I want that treasure. I want, I want Jesus to be my treasure like that. And there's a few passages in Scripture, the whole of Scripture is about Jesus, but few in particular that like we call like, like they're almost like, Christological hymns, hymns that are all about Jesus, like showing us his glory and his wonder and what he's done and who he is and what he's going to do. There's, there's like John chapter 1, Philippians 2. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1 this morning, um, a few verses, 15 down to 23. And yeah, I, I just pray that we will be blown away once again by, by Jesus. Um, so yeah, open up your Bible to Colossians chapter 1 if you've got them. If, if you if you haven't got a Bible and you would like one, come and see me, and you will get one by the end of the week. That is a promise, because we believe this stuff. So it's Colossians chapter 1, verses 15. So it says, The Son is the image of the, of the invisible God, 
the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is a gospel that, that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So the first thing that we we learn about Jesus. The first thing that we want to point out, the, the first reason why we as a church, we as a group of believers want to be all about Jesus alone is because his identity is unique. He is the image of God. It says the sun is the image of the invisible God. Did anyone see the, uh, the sun the other day with like the, the mist and the haze? Probably it was from the Sahara. Like Sahara Desert in Thornaby. Come on. <laughs> Woo it, but normally on, on a on a summer's day, on a summer's day, when the sun's high in the sky at its brightest, you, you can't bear to look at the sun, can you? If you do, you're gonna get hurt because of the, the power and the brightness of this of this ball of gas burning off in, in the galaxy. We can't look at the sun. And, and throughout the Old Testament, we have moments where, where God is revealed. Either he'll meet with his people or he'll give a, his, a vision to one of his prophets. And we see the glory of who God is. And these moments, these encounters were, were dramatic. The first one um, in Exodus Exodus 19. Uh, so you've got the people of, of Israel. Uh, they, they're out of Egypt now, and God's revealing himself to, to the people and, and saying that you're going to be my people, and here's how, how you're going to worship me. Uh, Moses is a key guy at this point who's being like the, the medi- mediator between the people and God. And, the, and then the Lord says to Moses, in chapter 19 of Exodus, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the, told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. After Moses had gone down the the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their their clothes. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was, was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. 
As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. So you get the picture. There's smoke, there's thunder and lightning, there's a loud trumpet blast. You go anywhere near this mountain, you're going to die because the the presence of God, the glory of God is resting on this, this mountain. The mountain is shaking, the people are trembling, the glory of God is being revealed. And then there's another moment, um, Isaiah, uh, he was one of the, the prophets in the Old Testament, and he has this vision of, of God. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, they're like angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah's like, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King the Lord Almighty. So there's this being, this God who's on the throne and there's angels flying around shouting, holy, holy, holy. They can't even look at God. Remember, six wings, two of them were flying, the other four they were using to cover themselves and they were just shouting, this God is holy. Isaiah, he's like, he's like top of the class in, in Sunday school, right? He's a prophet. If anyone can be in the presence of God, Isaiah can. And he's like, I'm dead. I'm done. I've just seen this God, and he is holy. He's shaking this room. There's angels flying around. I'm a godder. You know, as, as God began to like establish what worship would look like in the Old Testament, um, part of the, the setup was that, that one priest, once a year, could enter into this place called the Holy of Holies, which is where it was said that the presence of God dwelt. And part of the dress code for this priest, so he had to offer a lot of sacrifices even to get through the door, but part of the dress code was that he would have bells on his outfit and a rope tied around him. And they were, the other guys outside the tent knew if the bells were still ringing, the guy was still alive. <laughs> if the bells stopped ringing, they would pull him out with this rope. Such, like, they knew that this God was holy, not to be messed with. He was powerful. He was lived in this light and Things shook, things happened when, when God was in the room. It was a real risky business, you could say, like meeting, meeting with God. And then we have Colossians 1. In the New Testament, we have Jesus, and it says the Son is the image of the invisible God. In, in John chapter 12, we read that, you know, John has just quoted a, a passage from Isaiah 6, that passage that we just read. And after that, John says... This in John 12, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So that being that was on the throne with the angels flying around, having the place shaking, that person on the throne where Isaiah sees and he's like, I'm dead, I'm gone. This, this person's so holy. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We couldn't get to God. We couldn't see God, but God in his mercy has revealed himself to us. You want to know what God's like? You look at Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. He and he alone is the image of the invisible God. Not Allah, not Buddha, not any other pathway to enlightenment or spirituality. Jesus alone is God. And you get to know God. You are made right with God. 
through Jesus alone. So he is unique in his identity because he is the image of God. He is also the creator God. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things are being created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Man, you want to know how big and indescribable our God is? On a clear night, just go and look up at the stars. And the scriptures here telling us that Jesus made all of that. Jesus is holding all of that in place. We, we live in the Milky Way galaxy, and that is like a little subdivision of our whole universe. And our galaxy contains billions of stars. Billions of stars. And there are hundreds of billions of subdivisions, each containing billions of stars. Massive amounts. Hard to get our heads around. And it says, are we up there? So this is our galaxy. This is the Milky Way galaxy. And scientists say, so there's billions of stars here. If you were to count the stars in our galaxy, so that's just one of the subdivisions in the hundreds of billions of subdivisions in the universe. If you were to count one star per second, it would take you 2,500 years to count the stars in our galaxy, in our subdivision. And then our little solar system. So this is like our neighborhood in the subdivision. That's like the sun and Mars and Earth and Jupiter. Our little gang of planets that fly around our sun. That is like, comparatively speaking, that is like a one-pence coin being placed on the continent of North America. That's the sun and our planets in that galaxy. And there's hundreds and billions of these galaxies. In Isaiah 40, God is speaking again, revealing himself to Isaiah, and he says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry horse one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Jesus is unique in his identity because he is the one who made the universe and is holding all of that together. Right, I've been a bit emotional this morning. I was, I was almost in tears when we were worshipping earlier because I had this picture in my head, this galaxy. I'm thinking, I'm singing to the one who's holding all of that together. I mean, that's amazing. I, we've heard some incredible answers to prayer this morning. And, you know, and we're going to keep praying and keep expecting. And we're going to keep expecting because one, our God loves us and he's good. But also, our God is holding this together. If he can hold that together, then what can he do in our lives? What miracles should we be expecting? It's incredible. Jesus is unique in his identity because he's the image of the invisible God. And he's the creator of the world. He's a creator God. He's also the head of the church of God. Verse 18 says that he's the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Everything. For Martin Luther and the reformers, they had to argue strongly, strongly that it was not the Pope who was the head of the church, it is Jesus who is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of Teesside Vineyard Church. 
He's the one that we want to make look amazing. He's the one who we want to be talking about. He's the reason why we're worshipping here this morning. He's the reason why we, we give to the church, why we serve in the church. He's the reason why we're, we're going to feed kids all through half term next week. Not because we think it's a good idea to give kids food. We do. But our heart is that we want to see these kids meet Jesus because he's the head of the church. So he is unique in his identity. He's the image of God. He's the creator God, and he's the head of the church of God. Everything is about him, and everything is for him. And his work is sufficient. So, verse 19. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God... And were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. The Bible tells them we've seen that, that God is holy, he's perfect, he's our creator, he made us. And we had the audacity to turn around and look at the stars, look at our God and say, I'm going to live as if you didn't exist. I'm going to go and do my own thing. That's what we call sin. Living as if God doesn't exist. And we know it gets us into all sorts of mess. And God, because he is holy and perfect and pure, he has to punish sin. He has to punish rebellion. And the, 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 the pronouncement over our lives, over each of our lives, is guilty. We are enemies of God. We are alienated from him. We have no way in and of ourselves to make us right with God. But because God loves us, because he's a God who's so full of grace and mercy, because he wants relationship with us, he provided a way. And this is what this is talking about. Jesus came and died in our place. Do you remember when we were going through Galatians and we had that picture of the, of the courtroom? And you, and you stood there in the dock. And the evidence is stacked high against you. And the, the, the right punishment for your crimes is that you should be, what you deserve is to be pronounced guilty and then put to death. The, the judge pronounces you guilty and he's about to put down the hammer when the judge's son walks through the door. And the judge's son comes and stands next to you and says to the judge, whatever crimes this person has committed, put to my account. And therefore, whatever punishment was due this person, I will take. And the judge looks at his son, pronounces guilty and slams the hammer down, and then the son is taken away and killed in your place. And you're stood there, shocked. Remember, I'm going through Galatians, that's what we call justification, because the judge then looks at you and says, not guilty. You're not guilty. Because the punishment that was due your crimes has been paid by someone else. But then it gets even more amazing because the judge comes down, he takes off his robes, he comes over to you, he undoes your chains and says, you're going to come home as my son or daughter and enjoy the riches of my house. So the Bible calls adoption. And that's the picture that Jesus comes in, comes to earth, lives a perfect life, but then right at the end, as he's dying on the cross, he takes our sin on his shoulders, 
dies in our place, he was pronounced guilty when really it was us who was guilty. So that now, as we put our faith in Jesus, and there's a two-part process to this, we repent, so we turn from the way we were going, and we put our faith in Jesus, all of that is then applied to us. And we are, we, are, we are without blemish. We are free from accusation. We were adopted into the family of God with the certainty of eternity with God. And all of that because of Jesus, Jesus Christ alone. Jesus' work is sufficient for us. And the, for the reformers, they were battling against a teaching that said that you were, you were saved, made right with God with, by faith plus. So the idea being that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't sufficient. There was stuff that we had to do to get ourselves into heaven. The Bible, the reformers taught that it's faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, which is the means by which you are saved and made right with God. You don't have to be a good person. You don't have to do this or that. You don't have to give this or that. Initially, it's just faith alone in Jesus. And then as a response to that, to the amazement of that, everything else flows from there. So Jesus is unique in his identity. He's the image of God. He's the creator, creator God. He's the head of the church, and his work is sufficient. Jesus' death on the cross is all that was needed for us to be made right with God. And the reformers had to battle hard for this, to proclaim who Jesus was, to proclaim that it is all just about Jesus alone. In our culture, one of the battles that we face is that Jesus is just one of the ways we can be made right with God. That's not true. It is Jesus alone. Only faith in Jesus as the Son of God, faith in his death and resurrection, only that can make us right with God. Nothing else. No other religion, no other thought, way of thinking, no other spirituality. It is Jesus alone. On that statement, Teesside Vineyard takes its stand. On that statement, I would go to prison. I would die for that. This is fundamental. It is Jesus Christ alone. Everything is all about him, all for him, all because of him. Another battle we might face is that Jesus was just a good teacher. I think you've probably heard this, actually, as you've been talking with friends at work or family members. Oh, Jesus was, was it, you know, he taught some really good stuff. He was a good teacher, but he wasn't, he couldn't have been God, could he? Well, I'm sure you've all heard of a guy called C.S. Lewis. Um, he, very clever guy, held positions at uh, Cambridge and Oxford universities. He, uh, he wrote the Narnia Chronicles in his spare time. Makes you sick, doesn't it? He, he had some uh, evacuees in the war who were staying at his house, getting a bit rowdy. So just wrote the Narnia Chronicles, as you do. Just keep him occupied. But he went on an incredible journey where first he was convinced there was a God, and then he became convinced that the, the God out there was the God of the Bible. And this is what he said to, to counter this argument that Jesus was just a good teacher. He said that a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. But don't let us come up with any nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us, and he didn't intend to. What C.S. Lewis is saying here is that, yes, he was a, he was a great teacher, but you would probably agree that great teachers don't lie to their students. 
And one of the things that Jesus said was, time and time again, that he was and is God. So, the options are, either he was a bad man, and he just said he was God to get more popularity, so more people would follow him. But that doesn't seem to match up with the rest of his life. Or he was a madman. He really believed that he was God. And he just had a bit of a screw loose. But when you see the things that he taught and the way that he lived, I don't think that option was open for us either. So therefore, I would come to the same conclusion as C.S. Lewis did. And he's a, very, he's a much cleverer man than I am. And I would agree that Jesus is who he says he is. So it's Jesus, Jesus alone. His identity is unique. His, his work is sufficient. And if Jesus is then, really is, if he is who he says he is, then what does that mean? What response should stir in us? I, I would suggest the only response is, wor- is worship. A love and an affection and a thankfulness and a surrender to him. It's like, what a God, what a saviour, what a friend he is. And he's here. He's here with us. For those of us who are following Jesus, he's made our home, his home in our hearts. And he pours out his love into our hearts every day by the Holy Spirit. In November, we're going to be hearing some stories from people in our church about who Jesus is to them. And all of those guys would agree that that Jesus' identity is unique, he's the image of God, he's creator, he's the head of the church. They would agree that his work is sufficient. But also, they've come to see so much more of who Jesus is, that he's their provider, their comforter, their friend, their counsellor. He's all in all. He's everything to them. Can we say that about Jesus? You know, when, when I've been thinking about all of this, uh, and I consider all that Jesus is, all that we've looked at today, like, Eileen's response to the question makes so much sense. So much sense. Even after all her adventures and stories and miracles that she's seen taking place, her, her greatest joy, her, her deepest love, her heart's desire was Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's what I want for me. And that's what I want for us as a church, that we would be a church that is all about Jesus and him alone and passionately loving him. So we're going we're gonna to worship now for, uh, yeah, just in, in response. I think this is the, the rightful response. I wasn't sure how to close off the, the service today, but I, I just feel that this is right. That we, we would sing our praises to the one who is holding up the stars in the sky and yet...